Welcome to the Message Podcast from Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to subscribe for updates and new episodes. You can find us on most major podcast outlets. Visit cotnaz.org for more info. Our worship services stream weekly on Sundays at 9 a.m. on YouTube. You can also find our live stream at cotnaz.org. Our in-person service times are 9 and 10.30 a.m. We have a campus near Harrisonburg at 1871 Boyers Road. We also have a campus in East Rockingham at 414 Southeast Side Highway in Elkton. In addition, our Spanish-speaking campus meets on Sundays at 11.45 a.m. at that same 1871 Boyers Road location. Check out our website, cotnas.org, for more info. If you're joining us today, I'm Pastor Billy. I'm the pastor of discipleship here. I have the privilege to, to bring the word of God this morning. Pastor Adrian, that's our lead pastor that was just up here. We're so glad to have you joining us. We're in the uh, second to last part of our series that we've been in for a number of weeks now, uh, Revelation, the seven churches. And so we've been journeying through uh, Revelation, through these, these letters that Jesus spoke to the Apostle John to write down to send to these seven churches in Asia Minor at the time. And so here we are, we're at the second to last church, and we find ourselves in Philadelphia today, in the church in Philadelphia. And instead of saying Philadelphia every time, if I say Philly, that's where we're at, but not the Philly that you may be familiar with. What do we know about Philadelphia and the church there uh, here, this Philadelphia that we read about in Revelation chapter 3? We're going to get there. Uh, Philadelphia literally means a brotherly love. And so, uh, it, you know, the reputation of Philadelphia, it's the city of brotherly love. Although I was reading a little bit about it and, and someone said they've renamed it the city of the brotherly shove. But I don't know anything about that. Um, so the, Philadelphia means a brotherly love. Um, this city here in this context was prone to earthquakes. They were located uh, on a geological fault line in a volcanic region, and, and they were actually completely destroyed by an earthquake in AD 17 and eventually rebuilt. So the ground was always shaking in Philadelphia. Philadelphia uh, commanded one of the greatest highways in the world, the highway which led from Europe to the east. Philadelphia was the gateway from one continent to another. Literally, it was a gateway. The church of Philadelphia is one of the seven that seems to be getting it completely. If you've been on this journey, there's been some hard words, some challenging words, some calls to repent. But this church seems to be one of uh, the few, if not of the seven, um, to be getting it completely. And this is despite facing the opposition and challenges that the other six churches are facing. You see, life isn't, life isn't any easier for the people of Philadelphia. They are simply more faithful more loyal, and by implication, obedient to God and his word. The churches uh, at Philadelphia and the church that we looked at, um, the second church, the church in Smyrna, are the only churches that receive no negative criticism from Jesus. No condemnation, no call to repentance. Both are poor and persecuted and seemingly small congregations. And so the primary challenge here to the church in Philadelphia is, is not to quit but to keep doing what they're doing, which would imply that they will have a reason to falter if they aren't diligent. And so we're going to read now Revelations 3, and we're going to see Jesus offers no condemnation, only commendation and comfort. Revelation 3, it's going to be on the screen beginning in verse 7. 
to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will write also on him my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Amen? Amen. So, so quickly, a text analysis of, of that, uh, some bullet points before we, before we go a little deeper. The people of the church at Philadelphia have an open door. They have little strength. They have kept the word of God. They've not denied the Lord. They have received the command to hold on, and they have received promise of a great reward. And so I want to go through these verse by verse and then see what does that mean for our lives as the church today. Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy. The words of him who is holy. Jesus tells them right from the start who he is. And we've talked about Jesus' introduction to these churches and, and how it's relevant to what's going on in the church. It's relevant to the words he has to say to them. But the interesting thing here is Jesus doesn't use his introductory statements that he gives to John in Revelation chapter 1. He does something different here to this church because of their faithfulness. He, he tells them who he is. These are the words of him who who is holy. And I found it interesting. It's off topic, but it's not. Many of those who are apologists in Islam, they argue that Jesus does not say unequivocally that he is God in the scriptures. That's one of their arguments against Christianity. But I'm not sure how they miss what he's saying here unless they're just playing with semantics. When Jesus says that he's holy and true, it reinforces Jesus is saying, I am God. I am God and I will do what I have promised. As in the Old Testament, we hear of God being the Holy One of Israel. Thus, Jesus and the God of the Old Testament are one. Just a theology lesson today. None but God is absolutely holy. And so Jesus, being holy, is wholly separated from sin and all that is profane. He's separated from sin because he is the Savior. And in many ways, holiness is God's central attribute Holiness is what makes God, God. And so Jesus begins by saying, these are the words of God. I am holy and true. The one who is true. Both here in Revelation 3 and in Revelation 19, Jesus is called faithful and true. This attribute of Jesus describes him as dependable, genuine, trustworthy, real in all ways in accordance with what is true. In a culture where there were gods everywhere. We've looked at this in depth. 
We've laid it over the grid of where we find ourselves. And in a culture where there were gods everywhere, Jesus stood and stands out as the authentic God, not a molded or a crafted God, not a God invented by one's unredeemed mind. So what does this mean? The one who is true. It means that every word spoken by Jesus can be depended upon to accomplish exactly what he says it shall accomplish. And that should encourage someone today. These are the words of he who is holy, who is true, and who holds the key of David. That's kind of a weird phrase, right? That's kind of a weird phrase uh, in our uh, mind's eye. The key of David, it's alluding to, to this story from Isaiah where Elakim, son of Helikai, a steward of King David, is given the key to the house of David to rule justly, to rule rightly. And so Jesus says, I hold the key of David. And it reminds us, it should remind us today, church, as, as Jesus is speaking to this church in Philadelphia, this church that seems to be getting it right, it reminds us that no matter what we see in our circumstances, because you see, the church in Philadelphia didn't have better circumstances. They lived in the Roman uh, pagan culture with temples. Uh, Dionysus was the, the temple of that city, the god of wine and revelry. They lived in the thick of it. They were receiving persecution from the culture and from those who called themselves true Jews. But Jesus is reminding them, no matter what you see in your circumstances, I am in control. I hold ultimate authority. Amen. He holds the key of David. I got it on the screen here. Charles Swindoll, in one of his writings, he said this, whatever I entrust to him, he can take care of better than I. And he continues a little later and he says, nothing under his control can ever be out of control because he holds all authority. Nothing I entrust to him, nothing can he not take care of better than I. Nothing under his control can be out of control. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that's true in your life today? Follow-up question would be, do you live like it's true? Do you have a living faith that lives like that is true today? You see, Jesus says who he is when he, when he introduces himself to this church. He says who he is and what he does, and it is coinciding with his commendation to the church in Philadelphia. Because this church is exemplifying in their life, in their existence, in their mission, in their being. They're exemplifying Christ's likeness. They're remaining holy and true to God and his word. And so Jesus introduces himself accordingly. And he continues, he says, I know your deeds. This is a common refrain we see to each church, each church in Revelation. Jesus says, I know your deeds. He knows them inside and out and how their faith is working itself out in their lives or not. And the reality is he knows your deeds and he knows mine today. And you know what, the, you know what there's this idea that I, I, I'm trying to get my mind around and, uh, and it's a wonderful idea because we all would sit here today and say, uh, yes, I, 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 I want the blessings of God in my life. Man, I, I want God's blessings in my life and in the life of my family. But how many of us today would say, man, but the, but, the, but the heart cry of my life is really to be a blessing to God. Not that I would just receive God's blessings, but my life would actually bless God. Did you know that your life can bless God today? That the God of the universe, your life can bless him. Think about that. 
I know your deeds, says Jesus. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. That no one can shut. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Uh, we should note that when Jesus says, I've placed, in the NIV, that word there, placed, is in perfect tense in the Greek, which literally means he has given it to them. They haven't opened the door. They haven't kicked it down. Jesus says, I have given you this door. I have given you this opportunity. And in this context, it, it conveys the sense of bestowing, granting, supplying, delivering, committing, entrusting this to this church. He says, I've entrusted this opportunity to you, church. So while the idea here is clearly that of placing before the Philadelphian believers an open door for ministry... In the New Testament, oftentimes open doors are spoken of as an opportunity to share the gospel, to share the good news concerning Jesus. It should also be noted here, though, that the word is used of entrusting something to someone for some type of stewardship. So Jesus says, church, I've put before you an open door. I have entrusted this to you because I trust you and because I am trustworthy. According to Ramsey, one commentator, he said Philadelphia was a missionary city founded to promote a certain unity of spirit and customs and loyalty within the realm, the apostle of Hellenism in an oriental land. So it was a missionary city for the Hellenistic culture. Philadelphia lay at the upper extremity of a long valley which opens back from the sea. After passing Philadelphia, the road along this valley ascends to the great central plateau and the main mass of Asia Minor. This road was one that led from the harbor of Smyrna to the northeastern parts of Asia Minor and the east in general, and the one rival to the great route connecting Ephesus to the east and the great Asian trade route of medieval times. Philadelphia, therefore, was the keeper of the gateway to the plateau. And so these words are relevant. They're relevant to these people living in this city. Jesus' words to the church here, I've set before you an open door, may be an allusion to the city's status as a missionary city and its location on this major highway. You say, what does all that mean? The church was to use the city's strategic location and status to spread the good news about Jesus. They were where they were for God's purpose in their generation. They found themselves there, not by accident, not outside the all-seeing eye of their creator, but the one who holds ultimate authority. They found themselves there for a purpose that God had placed before them. So what is the open door, church, that he's placed before us where we find ourselves today? What about in your life? What's the open door that he's placed before you? The opportunity to share the hope of the gospel. I've placed before you an open door because you have little strength. And he says, I know, I know you have little strength. Some of you feel like that today. You feel like you've been faithful. You've been on this journey of grace. But today, if you were honest, you would just say, I have very little strength. And David Jeremiah commentates it this way. He says that the Greek text conveys this idea. You have but little strength. And Christ presents their situation as almost problematic. You have ample opportunity, but little strength. The implication is that their power is not what matters. It's the power of Christ. This seems to be a small church with little influence, but it's not hindered them from staying obedient and faithful. They have stayed obedient and faithful. Jesus continues. He continues. He says, you have kept 
my word. You've kept my word. Kept in the Greek means to watch over, to guard, to preserve, to give heed, and also to give heed to, to pay attention to, especially of the law or the word or the teaching of God. And so undoubtedly both ideas are at play here. When Jesus says, you've kept my word, they were committed to Christ's word or the word of the Savior to preserve it from false ideas, from syncretism. Remember, we've talked about this. These other churches, some of these churches are getting rebuked because they, they've, not, they've not kept the word of God from being polluted, from being assimilated into the worldview of their culture. They've not protected the word of God in their lives, their biblical worldview. They've allowed it to get corrupted. And Jesus is saying, you've kept my word. You've preserved it from these false ideas and from this syncretism. But he's saying, you've also have been committed to observing it in your lives personally. They've been obedient to his word. Not only have they preserved it from corruption, they have kept his word in their lives and walked according to it. You've kept my word, Jesus says. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, it's on the screen here, he says this, he was a martyr in World War II. He says, to rely on Christ's word and cling to it offers greater security than all the securities in the world. Remember that today. A greater security than anything temporary, than any bank account, than any place that you might live. Clinging to Christ's word offers greater security. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. This speaks of their spiritual fidelity and separation from the world. Their lordship is loyal to Christ alone. Remember that what we've seen in Revelation so far is that one may confess the Lord with their mouth and yet in some way deny him with their life with a life that is inconsistent with the truth of Scripture or the character of Christ. We see these warnings to these other churches. He said, but you, you've not denied my name. And the idea behind having not denied the name is not only that they've expressed their allegiance to Jesus, but they lived in a way that was faithful to the name and character of Jesus, faithful in love and loyalty. They were what the church is supposed to be. They were uh, Christ in the world. They were distinctly and wonderfully different. And Jesus says, now I'm going to allow you to be a light to the nations. This is what the church is called to be. Wonderfully, distinctly different, a light to the nations. And so Christ has given them an open door to minister to those who are in desperate need of living hope. Because the reality, the reality of this is that spiritual effectiveness is not measured by capability or capacity. It's measured by commitment. You hear that today? I want to say it again. Spiritual effectiveness. Because some of us feel weak. Some of us feel timid. Some of us have, feel like we have no giftings and no, uh, no strength uh, to call to live in the way that Christ has called us to live. Uh, to call to, to be a light in the places that we find ourselves in our workplaces and our family. But the truth is this. Spiritual effectiveness is not measured by capability or capacity. It's measured by commitment. Commitment to the one who is faithful and true. And so Jesus continues. He continues with his encouragement in verse 9. He says, I'll make those who are the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. The synagogue of Satan here, we see these, these characters. We see them in, in, in uh, the church in Smyrna. 
It refers to the local Jewish synagogue that believes it's doing God's work by opposing the followers of Jesus. And John, in the book of Revelation, often reverses perceived situation and shows the true spiritual reality of things. We've seen that, have we not? Here, those who claim to be Jews, and therefore God's chosen people by their heritage, by their birth, by their ancestry, are actually working for Satan, who is the accuser of our brothers and sisters. That's a turn on its head, right? You see, the defining characteristic of those who are truly God's chosen and beloved people is not their family heritage, but their faith in Jesus. Someone needs to hear that today. Those who are God's true and chosen people are defined not by their family heritage, but by their faith in Jesus. And Jesus says to this church, I will vindicate you as my true and beloved, my chosen people one day by making your opponents fall at your feet. And he simply reminds them again that all opposition to the way and work of Jesus is always satanic. That's why he calls it the synagogue of Satan. Paul said in Ephesians 6 that, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of the dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so, pray for those. Pray for your enemies. Love those who mistreat you. Because we do not battle against flesh and blood. Verse 10 he continues, since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. The phrase to keep you implies some sort of protection, and it's not entirely clear what this involves and when it occurs. Many commentators believe that this hour of trial that he's going to keep them from is the great tribulation that he talks about later in Revelation. Whether that's the case exactly or not, I'm not sure. Whatever the promise of Revelation 3 and verse 10 may fully entail, it's clearly meant to be a great comfort to these believers. And it should be a great challenge and a great comfort to us today. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. Why? Because you have kept my command to endure patiently. I don't know if that endurance was, was the persecution, was the onslaught of the culture, was, was to continue to endure even though they literally lived in a location that was unstable. The ground was shaking. Uh, they, they didn't know when they would be fleeing or staying. And so they've endured patiently. And Jesus says, because you've kept my command, I'm going to show you my favor. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. That's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. It's particularly sent to test those who live upon the earth. And that doesn't mean the residents of the whole planet. It's a reference to the people's mental state, their state of mind. It's referring to those who live as though this life is all there is. He's saying, I'm come to, to test those who are materialistically minded, who live upon the earth and for the earth and for the things of earth. That's what the time of testing is sent to reveal. Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from that. Because you have endured, you have kept my command. And so I'm going to keep you. Verse 11, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. And some of you are thinking, yeah, but, but it's been almost 2,000 years since he said he was coming soon. Like, like really? What, how much can we weigh that phrase coming from the mouth of Jesus? And our culture would say, nonsense. I'm coming soon, says Jesus. 
what this idea really what this idea really conveys is not I'm coming soon in the sense of soonness as we understand it. This idea is that I'm coming suddenly and I'm coming unexpectedly. It's imminent. My return is imminent. It's going to be sudden and unexpected. So imminency makes it impossible to know when Jesus might come. So the idea here is that the believer, you and I, must remain constantly on the lookout in case the Lord were to return and find us unprepared. So my question is, do you live daily with a Maranatha mindset? That phrase is simply this idea of living with this kind of mindset, that Jesus is coming soon, and so the heart cry of our life is, Amen, come Lord Jesus. The second to last verse in Revelation, the second to last verse in your Bible says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. The Apostle John hears the words of Jesus when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, and he says, so be it, come. Come, Jesus. We're ready. We're ready to see you face to face. Do you live with that kind of mindset day to day? I believe it would change our perspective on everything. It would give us the right perspective to see that what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal and forever. I'm coming soon, says Jesus. So hold on to what you have. Hold on to what you have. The writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 36. He said, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Hallelujah. Hold on to what you have. Why? So that no one may take your crown. It's an interesting picture, right? Hold on to what you have. Don't shrink back. Hold on to the faith that you have. Even if you feel today you have little strength. To lose a crown or to be deprived of it is, is to be deprived of honor or glory that is available through faithful living to Jesus alone. Ray Stedman said this, and it might be hard to read on the screen, but I'm going to read it for you. He said, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown carries this essence. He says, as the times get harder and it's more difficult to be a Christian, as hostility increases and the world becomes more and more secular and casts aside much of the trappings of Christianity that it had formerly practiced, then we must be careful that we do not give up and go along with the worldly attitudes and worldly pursuits. We must not allow a desire for status and prestige and fame and beautiful homes and the things that the world lusts for to become central in our thinking. And so what Jesus says when he says to hold on, when he says hold on, just hold on to what you have, he's saying don't be careless, don't be casual about your faith or your calling or your purpose or your service or your love for me. Hold on to what you have. Why? Verse 12, the one who is victorious, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. The language here describes the faithful believers permanent residence in the presence of God. We have exceeding hope today, church family, because pillars are symbols of permanence and stability. You see, the people in Philadelphia were very familiar with pillars. This city was also known as Little Athens because of its great structures. And so many of those structures were supported by these strong and firm pillars. After the earthquakes came through, oftentimes uh, now in the city of Philadelphia, the remnants of the old city that exists are simply pillars 
that have remained standing to this day. So these people understood the permanence, the stability of a pillar and the hope of something that was firm, that was permanent and stable is significant to be these people because they lived in a land of frequent instability because of the earthquakes that hit and shook this region. Their ground was literally shaking. Not only were their, were their lives shaking because of, of what was happening around them, because of the culture, the persecution, but their lives physically were literally being shaken. And Jesus says, if you are victorious, if you are a conqueror, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, not in a temple that will fade away. I'll write on them, he continues, I'll write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. I wish we could take a half hour just to unpack that right there. But essentially, what do we do when we write our name on things? We write our name on things to show ownership of those things that belong to us, right? That's why we write our names on things. It's, it's a, as a means of identification and belonging that that belongs to us. And some of you are familiar with that. You're, if you have kids, they're going back to school, right? You write their names on everything, the backpack, the lunchbox that, that they're not going to come home with the first day, and you write it on the water bottle, right? You write it on everything to show that belongs to your child. So what Jesus is saying, this is Jesus He's saying, I'm going to give you three new names, not one. The name of my God, glorification. The name of the new Jerusalem, this new city, the bride of Christ, uh, consummation. And my new name, Jesus will have a new name that we have no idea what it is. Only Jesus knows. He says, I'm going to put that on you, identification and intimate expression. Jesus is speaking of an intimate expression, an intimate belonging Beyond our comprehension, church. Beyond our comprehension. Do you know how loved you are today by the God that created you? If you will, if you will conquer, if you will persevere, if you will come to the end faithful, man, great is your reward beyond comprehension. And what we see in Revelation, the rewards for endurance and perseverance and conquering throughout all point to this abiding presence and relationship with God the Father in Christ. You know what it shows, the reality? It shows that what you and I may lose, whatever the cost for remaining faithful to Jesus here on earth, he will return in reward exceedingly in eternity. Because that lasts forever. That lasts forever. And he finishes as he always does. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think we would all agree. I think we would all say amen that we want to hear the praise and encouragement that Jesus gives to the church at Philadelphia. And if we will be like this church, we must build on their foundation which was Jesus' name and Jesus' word. We must depend on their source of strength which was Christ and not themselves. Jesus is finishing up, and it's one of my favorite uh, uh, parables. It's one of my favorite stories. As he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, he's given this long discourse, his greatest teaching that we find in the Gospels of what it looks like to live into this new kingdom of God reality when we belong to him, this new kingdom, what it looks like to live into this reality. And he finishes everything he's just said with this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, therefore, because of everything I've said, You've heard it. And so now he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice 
is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You see, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and it beat against the house violently, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. And maybe you know the rest of it. He says, but the one who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand and the rain came and the streams rose and the winds blew and the house fell with a mighty crash. And so what we see in the church in Philly is this. They've not just known about Jesus and had the knowledge of his word, but they have put it into practice with a living faith. With a living faith. There was a guy from uh, 80s, 90s, early 90s, uh, probably when I was uh, uh, growing up. Uh, I didn't really, um, I wasn't familiar with him, but my wife and her siblings were, and his, his name was Rob Evans. He went by the Donut Man. Maybe some of you know who I'm talking about. Uh, we still watch him in my house. My kids love it. Um, so we, we're watching it. Um, go to YouTube, download the app, Donut Man. It's great. Anyway, he said this. We were watching one the other night, and it jumped out. And he said this. He said, God has a plan for your life. Follow his directions, and it'll turn out right. That sounds a whole lot like Jesus saying, those who hear my words and put them into practice, their life will have a firm foundation. Their life will be what it is designed to be. And some of you, though, some of you, uh, some of you may say, well, well, well some of his words, uh, his commands are just too difficult to put into practice. They're too hard to stay faithful to. Listen, I'm sure that the church in Philly said this, this a time or two as they were keeping the command to patiently endure in the time in which they were living. I'm sure they felt that. I'm sure they, they empathized with what you're feeling. But it's also been said that God's commandments are God's enablements. In other words, here's the good news, church. In other words, here's the good news. God will not command us to do something that he will not also enable us to do. Praise God. Praise God. I, I, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that or my life would be a mess. And so that's why I, I preach so passionately. That's why I get excited about, about the hope of Jesus because he's not going to command us to do something that he's not going to also enable us to do. He says, keep my word. What, that, what does that mean? Don't compromise the word of God in your life. Endure patiently. That means don't kick down the door. Sometimes waiting is worship. Stay faithful, church. He says, don't tolerate idolatry and immorality in your life. Stay faithful. I'm going to enable you to do it by the power of my spirit. Hold on to what you have, even if you have little strength. Pastor Brian Michael said, each and every day we hear the command of God, and it may be something amazing, some ministry to engage, some miracle to perform, and we have no ability to accomplish the task. God does. He has every ability to accomplish through you whatever he would command to be done. More likely, the command will be more daily, perhaps even seemingly mundane. Love your wife. Disciple your kids. Be kind to your coworkers. Serve your brother. Forgive your neighbor. How many times have we encountered the impossibility of these tasks, and yet his word commands it? What a great time to fall on our face in humble submission to him, asking for his spirit to fill us and empower us to stand to our feet in simple but profound obedience. If we know he's commanded it, we know he will enable us to obey it. Somebody ought to say hallelujah. I got one more quote here by Warren Wearsby summing all of this up that we've talked about 
And it says this, it's not the size or strength of a church that determines its ministry, but faith in the call and commandments of the Lord. It's not size, it's not strength, but it's faith in the call and the commandments of the Lord. Because what we've seen in Revelation, what we've seen in these previous churches leading up to this church in Philadelphia, that seems to be getting it right. They seem to be who the church is created to be. It, we've seen that Jesus is not impressed with size or wealth or location or programs or activity. Jesus values faithfulness. And you can count on him to always be faithful because the bottom line is this. A church that is faithful will receive Christ's favor. It's true. A church that is faithful will receive Christ's favor. We see that playing out in Philadelphia. Jesus shows himself true to those who are true to him. Hallelujah. He shows himself true to those who are true to him. Now listen, this ain't prosperity preaching. I'm not, I'm not saying you do X and God does Y. You do this and you got happiness, health, wealth. That's not what I'm saying. But the Bible is clear that God shows his favor to those who are faithful. And you know what the beautiful thing is? That God enables us to do what he commands. Faithfulness is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's actually, it's actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence and power at work in the life of a believer, a disciple of Jesus. So if you put your faith in Jesus, if you're following after him, faithfulness is a fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. So then church, let us ask to be filled with all the fullness of his spirit that we might walk according to his ways, that we might grow in Christ's likeness as we put his words into practice. Pastor John Mark Comer said this, I heard it this past week, I was listening to a sermon, he said, Christ's likeness is not natural. It's not natural to our flesh. But he said, it is possible if we faithfully follow Jesus. So what does that look like according to this letter? According to the church in Philadelphia? Three things. Faithfully commit to his lordship and his word in every area of your life. Fully rely on Christ's strength and not the little strength that you and I have. And follow his spirit day to day, especially through the open doors that he's put in your path to share the hope and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the person that he's put before you. Following Jesus on this journey of grace takes all of our commitment, all of our courage. But you see, you see, the living hope we have when we're sons and daughters of the King reminds us that our foundation is firm when we're building our house on the rock. Even when the rain and the winds come, persecution and slander and loss and hatred and cultural assault, temptation to compromise, temptation to just give up because you feel like you have little strength. The good news, church, that we see here in this letter is that the one who is holy and true will not fail us. He's not failed you in the past. He's not going to fail you in the future, and he won't fail you now. You see, because for the believers in Philadelphia and many in the church around the world, and I believe many here today, I, I believe it would be said of many of us that, that Christ is not a theory to them or a nice answer or some guy in the sky who makes everything happy and comfortable. 
Christ is their comfort. He is their encouragement. He is their living hope. Christ is their firm foundation. Is he that to you today? And if so, are you following him faithfully? Would you stand with me as we prepare to pray and respond to this word, this word of, of, of encouragement, of hope, of commendation to this church? Are you following him faithfully today? We're going to sing a song, a declaration, and I believe it, it was probably the communal declaration of this church who had endured patiently and kept the command of the Lord. So I'm going to invite you to join in, to join in with this church, to make this de your declaration. Would you pray with me now? Jesus, 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 you are the one who is holy and who is true and holds all authority. You hold all authority. You are true in all the sense of real and true and faithful. Lord, today I pray that we would leave this place committed to faithfully following you, to building our house upon the rock, to hearing your words and putting them into practice, knowing that we have a firm foundation. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening today. You can email us at info at cotnaz.org for any questions about our church. When you're done listening today, please subscribe to this channel for updates and new episodes.